Thank you, you guys. This is a pretty tough assignment this evening, speaking after a dinner like that and speaking uh, in such a beautiful setting. If you would look in that direction, I don't know how I can concentrate on what I'm saying with having a view like that behind you. I'd like to pray before we begin. Lord, we want to thank you for the ministry that you're doing in Nigeria, and I thank you for Missy, I thank you for John, and I thank you for the way in which you've saved these children. Lord, we would pray that their newly adopted son would be able to get the medical attention that he needs and that you would intervene directly on his behalf and for your glory to make it evident that Jesus is alive and well. And Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for their example in showing us what it means to lay down your life, to give it back to you, who gave it to us in the first place. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence this evening, and we'd simply ask in the next few minutes that we have this evening that you would take your word and break it small and feed our hearts for your own name's sake. Amen. Not I, but Christ. And Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have a friend in Texas, and a bunch of us guys were sitting around sharing stories, and the topic was, have you ever been robbed? So we were talking about stories of different ones of us getting robbed of certain things. And he said that there is a law in Texas that says this. If somebody comes into my house, steals my iPhone, takes it to a pawn shop, gets some cash, leaves town, and my iPhone is at the pawn shop. If I go to that pawn shop if with my face ID or with a number, make it very clear that this is my phone, the law in Texas says that I have to buy it back from the owner of the pawn shop. I said, that's a stupid law. I mean, who goes and buys back what already is his in the first place? Jesus did. Friends, we're a twice-owned people, once by creation, once by redemption. And the love of God is so jealous for you and me that when Scripture says in Galatians 2.20 that he loved me and gave himself for me, he came back to buy what was already his in the first place. That is the depth of the love of God for you and me. A number of years ago, there was a lady in our neighborhood who went missing. Nobody knows what happened to her. Was she kidnapped? Did she commit suicide? Did she just take off? Nobody knows. And all around our neighborhood, there were these signs with her picture on it, missing. 
And to this day, as far as I know, she's never been found. The Catholic priest in our neighborhood began to, to um, organize prayer meetings for this woman and her family in the local chapel in our neighborhood. I cannot imagine what her husband and children and parents and siblings are going through. I don't know if you ever thought about it this way, but God lost something when he lost us. And it's as if humanity is on this big sign before the heart of God and it says missing and God goes looking. He's missing us. And he wants us so badly that he came back to buy what was already his in the first place. That's the love of God. And would that that love might grip my heart in a greater, greater way than it does now. I've been crucified with Christ. Do you know there are some people who, who once you tell them, uh, you can't do this, in other words, you're not able to do this, they're going to try all the harder to prove you wrong. <laughs> tell them you can't do it. They're going to try harder. Peter was of that sort. And when Jesus said, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times, and he put himself to the task of proving Jesus wrong, and he fell hard. And when he did, there was somebody who saw that event who was not shocked, who wasn't surprised, wasn't aghast that Peter went and did the very thing that he said he wouldn't, and that person was Jesus, because he knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. Jesus knew he couldn't. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, it says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. The law has become our tutor. The reason why God put the law in place, or one of them at least, was to show you and I that we can't live up to God's standard. You see, I don't break the law. The law breaks me. The law breaks me. Sin is not necessarily the measure of how bad you are. It's the measure of how good you're not. And God says, okay, go ahead and try harder. Just go ahead and try and meet my standard. Well, all that the law will do, it won't teach you how to stop sinning. It will teach you that you can't stop sinning. That's the object of the law, to lead us to the place that we talked about on the first evening, I need Jesus. I can't do this on my own. And the law brings me face to face with me. The law says, you're fired. Who shows up at work the next day after they've been fired? Peter Reed does. <laughs> because I want to do it on my own. 
I want to prove that I can. There's something so bent in my heart about proving that I can live up to God's standard that I try and try and try and try. You know, it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that the wages of sin is death. You pay a wage to somebody who works. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but sin is a lot of work because there is no power of the Spirit in sin. He does not involve himself in that. And so it is all done by my effort. Sin is exhausting. And it's the tutor that God often uses to lead us to Christ so that you and I may live in the power of his spirit. In Galatians chapter 3 and verses 3 through 5, Paul said, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The Galatian Christians went back as Christians, and they were going to try and live the Christian life out of their own strength. And if you and I insist on doing that, we're going to suffer from one of two things. Either we're going to suffer from self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is an attitude that takes pride in its accomplishments. And one of the ways in which self-righteousness manifests itself is that it points its finger at somebody who's doing worse than you are so that you can stand above them. When I, when I was um, about to go to Bodensee as an RA at Bible school in 1984, um, I had a big bad attitude towards my church. You know, it's amazing what, we, you know, we as young people, we always think that we know better. And I went to an older Torchbearer staff member who I'd never met before and who happened to be in the Twin Cities uh, ministering at a conference. And I came to him and started to expose my big bad attitude towards my church to him. And while I was speaking to him, the whole time he was crocheting. I'd never seen a man crochet before, but he was sitting there because he had learned that while he was in the army because he had a lot of extra time on his hands. And so he was listening to my big bad attitude of self-righteousness, and then he interrupted me. And he said, you know, I don't know who you are. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I went into this spiel about my bi biography, etc. And then he interrupted me again and he said, okay, now tell me who you are. And I said, I just did. And uh, he said, no, you didn't. He said, you know who you are? He said, you smell like a full diaper and you stink. That is the G version. That's the Gull Lake version. His version was a little bit more graphic and to the point. And I was so offended by what he said and what was, was offended in my, was my self-righteousness. He just put me in my place. And every time there was a staff conference, he'd come on my side and he'd put his arm around me and whisper in my ear and say, so how's it going, stinky? 
I, man, I'll tell you what, I miss that generation. They didn't mess around with me at all. Once they got a whiff of my self-righteousness, they just let me have it. The other thing that we might uh, suffer from if, if we want to try and live the Christian life on our own ability is self-condemnation. Always beating up on ourselves because we don't know if we're getting it right. And we're preoccupied with our failure, which can slip into self-pity, which of course is very dangerous. And this basically was my philosophy when I became a Christian. My, my thinking went much like this. Well, if Jesus did so much for me, the very least I could do for him would be to live a godly life. And so in my setting, in my era of the church in the West, that just meant that I went about conforming my behavior to a Christian evangelical behavior pattern. And that meant, in my case, that I was going to, you know, read through the Bible in a year, obey my parents, evangelize, and don't drink or smoke what my friends were doing at school. And I dedicated myself to doing that. And it wasn't too, too soon after that that I was messing up. Church is going up to fall breakaway at Tart Lake Camp. Why don't you sign up? There's going to be a speaker, a band, and other Christian young people, including girls. So why don't you sign up and go? We'll pay for you. I went. It was a fantastic time. You know, it's amazing what a Christian young per person can confess in an act of dedication around a campfire at camp. And they would have an evangelistic message, and, and I knew I'd received Christ when I was 13, but then they'd tack on to that message the following. They'd say, listen, if you're not living for Jesus, we would invite you to come and rededicate your life to Christ. And so that was me. And so I came and rededicated my life to Christ. Went home three weeks after the warm fuzzies of camp had worn off, I was back doing pretty much the same things my non-Christian friends were. Then my parents would say, listen, there's going to be um, there's a ski retreat with the youth group up at Lutzen. Listen, why don't you sign up? There's going to be a, a speaker and a band and other Christian young people. <laughs> and um, why don't you sign up and go? So I went. It was a great time. Sure enough, there was an evangelistic message. I knew I'd received Christ, I had that assurance, and then they'd tack on the second half of the message, and they'd say, listen, if, you, if, if you're backslidden, you come tonight and rededicate your life to Christ. I came and re-re-dedicated my life to Christ. Went back, tried to read through the Bible in a year, got stuck in Leviticus, gave that up, and I never would have said this in church, but it looked like my non-Christian friends were having a lot more fun than I was, so I joined them. This cycle began to play itself out in my teenage years. One year, we went back to family camp, my spiritual birthplace, and my parents were so desperate, they left me there a second week and went home, hoping I'd get it. I mean, left your teenager at family camp and the family goes home. That's how bad it was. 
And it was a great time. Everything was happening according to plan. Sure enough, there was this evangelistic message. And then, you know, I knew what was coming. You're backslidden. We would invite you to come and rededicate your life to Christ. I know nobody, nobody in this room can relate to this, so I have to tell you this. And so I came and re-re-rededicated my life to Christ, and they said, if you mean business this year, go back home and throw all that secular music into the garbage can. So I went back, and I threw ZZ Top, Charlie Daniels, The Stones, The Beatles, Carlos Santana. I think I kept the Bee Gees, though, just because he didn't want to get radical. I mean, the worst decision in my life, threw all that good music away. I could have made a mint on that today. Walked around the streets of Stuttgart, see these LPs that I threw into the, to the garbage can because I had re-rededicated -re my life to Christ. Then I went to Bible school in 1979. And the first lecture we had, I don't know who planned it this way, but we had lectures the first week of Bible school on Hosea. Ho who? <laughs> I'd never heard of Hosea because I'd got stuck in Leviticus and my read through the Bible in a year plan, and I'd never heard of, of Hosea. I, I can't remember much of what he said, but sitting in the second to the last row, he stood up there and he said, I just want you to know the Christian life is not difficult. Well, that got my attention <laughs> because it was just like this roller coaster ride of, of trying harder, falling deeper, feeling more shame, asking for more forgiveness, trying harder, failing deeper, more shame, getting forgiveness. Well, he didn't stop there. He, he said the Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. And it's like, I just closed my Bible. I said, I just flew 5,000 miles to see this guy from, hear this guy from England whose accent is so strong, I can't really understand him, tell me that the Christian life is impossible. Had my parents called that night, what'd you learn in class today? I said, I just learned that the Christian life is impossible, so be encouraged, that's what your investment got you. <laughs> my confusion at that statement is indicative of the spiritual deception under which I had been suffering for the first five years of my Christian life. Nobody ever told me from the beginning that I would need Jesus as much to be a Christian as I needed him to become a Christian. Nobody ever told me that. So I was trying harder. And it took about five more years of sweat to come to the end of myself. Friends, there's a difference between self-condemnation and the conviction of the Spirit. And sometimes what I felt was God's disappointment with me was actually my disappointment with myself. And my disappointment with myself is indicative of the fact that I'd been trusting in myself in the first place. And my pride was just pouting. Jesus wasn't surprised. He knew what he got when he came to live in me. I love Tozer when he said the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. He stopped be being fooled about himself and has accepted God's estimate of his own life. 
Well, the whole of the Christian life is based upon his ability, not mine. The thing that endeared me, as well as Gabi, to, to Missy and John is, man, like, we're just the undeserving child of God. That's all we are. We're nothing special. been crucified with Christ, Scripture says. Death is an end, but it's also a beginning for a Christian. Death is an end, but it's also a, a beginning. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but nobody can crucify themselves. Because you, you have one hand free to drive the nails into your feet and drive the nails into this hand. Who's going to drive it into that hand? I can't even do that. I always used to read that verse and I'd say, well, I'm still living, so what's this about? I'm still here. So, so what does it mean to be crucified with Christ? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, and I'm sorry that I don't have that cross-reference up here, Paul gave me a hint as to what's happening. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. And in that passage, he's talking about a tough day and he says this, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. What's the crucifixion? It's the death of my self-confidence. We need confident Christians today. But my self-confidence needs to be transformed into a Christ confidence. I have no confidence in myself, and my confidence lies alone in him. And a person who knows himself to be dead has given up on themselves. You've given up on your ability. And you've turned to Christ, and your confidence is alone in him. I've been crucified with Christ. And the thing about that is the Spirit of God will lead me into this school and into this reality the more and more I know that I can't live the life to which he has called me. And he'll say, yeah, that's right. So here's another nail to put you on the cross. Your confidence is in me, not you. In schools of a theology, we talk about the substitutionary death of Christ. We speak too little about the substitutionary life of Christ. The one who died for me is the one who came to live in me. And as we said this morning, he paid a high price in order that all the resources of the risen Christ might come to live in me. And the basis of Christianity is based on a substitute. And if you and I are know and convinced of the sufficiency of Christ's death, we can know the sufficiency of Christ's life. He's our substitute. And sometimes, as I look over my shoulder 
in those years when I was living in this self-deception that I had what it takes, I was more worried about living the Christian life instead of knowing Christ, my life. As it says in Colossians chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3, Christ who is your life. And I'd been trying to live a life I had received, Christ's life. I'm old enough to remember the days when the WWJD bracelets came out. Whoever came out with those is sitting on a big pile of cash. And I was speaking in a church about this, and I just simply said, if what we mean by that is that, you know, God's call is to go imitate the character and behavior of Jesus, that's a dead-end street. I was at the pastor's house for lunch, and his wife looked at me, and she said, that kind of, you know, got a little burr in my saddle, because that's how I raise my kids. In fact, just last week, my son was misbehaving. I said, you know, next time you get yourself into this, that situation, just look at your bracelet and do what Jesus would do. Do you know what the kid said? He looked up in the, the face of his mother and said, yeah, but mom, I'm not Jesus. I said, the kid's theology is right. You look at the Gospel of John, you look at verses like John 5.19, John 5.30, uh, John, 5, uh, John 7, verse 28, John 7, verse 42, and, and Jesus said things like, I can do nothing apart from my Father. Then we get to John 14 and verses 9 to 11, and Phil looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and yet you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. It is the Father dwelling in me who does his works. If we really would do what Jesus did, we would live in that disposition of heart. Because Jesus lived in the disposition of heart that said, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. So who am I to assume that I can do something apart from Christ? Paul said this. I just want to wrap up with this passage. In Romans chapter 8 and verses 9 to 11. He said, however, you, not, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Indwells you, indwells you, indwells you. We used to have a, um, a heating system at Bodensee that burned wood, and it burned it at such a high temperature, it turned into gas. And, and, and it was just like a, this, this 
blue flame gas coming out of this wood-burning oven. And so I spend a lot of time in the forest with students getting wood. The director of the center looked at it like piles of gold out in the yard. And one day I had to rent or borrow a neighbor's truck. They own a carpentry shop in the neighborhood. I had my you know, time in the woods with the students, cleaned up the car, went to the um, gas station, filled up the tank, turned the key, and the motor wouldn't turn on. And this was, this was bad. You know, I'd borrowed this truck, and I walked back to the man's house. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Seibel, but something's wrong with your truck. He didn't even need to look under the hood. He got like, I don't know, 10 yards away and asked one simple question. What'd you put in the tank? I said, I filled up with gas to the top. I just wanted to be a good neighbor. He said, that's a diesel engine. You make that mistake once in the neighborhood. That stupid diesel engine would not run on gas. It would not tolerate gas. You see, we need to settle down to what I call a righteous intolerance. A righteous intolerance. That diesel engine would not tolerate gas. And I am wired in such a way, I am created in such a way to, to, to live through the indwelling spirit of God in my life. I'm wired that way. And what scripture says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 is, but if you don't have the spirit of Christ, you don't belong to him. Why is it in the areas of, of medicine, finance, and engineering, we will not tolerate a deviation from the truth, but once it comes to spiritual things, we look upon it as a virtue to tolerate any opinion out there. But as soon as you quote Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, all of a sudden you're looked upon as dangerous. Why is that? God just wanted to make it simple. You need me, and you need the presence of my spirit. So you don't have to try harder. And that passage says that the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and me. You can't be any weaker than dead. Death is human weakness taken to its greatest degree. So that tells me, because he can overcome that form of death, he can overcome my anger. He can overcome my lack of self-control and my addictive behavior pattern. He can overcome any other form of human weakness. How do I know that? If he can overcome death, those things are a piece of cake. I don't know, what the, what, what's the highway from? We flew into Grand Rapids coming up here. I know there were some backcountry roads. Hold down, what, what's, what's the highway? 47. 47? 37. 37. Let's just say that um, 
Hodan and I are going to drive back down to um, Grand Rapids, and he and his wife are going to meet Gabi and I. We're going to have a meal down there. And let's just say that um, we're going to drive in separate cars. And he's kind of retro, and he drives a Dodge Dart, if you're old enough to remember that car. I live in Germany, so I'm driving a Mercedes. And I say, OK, Hoedown, listen, you and your wife, you just go, you're going to lead a little bit longer than I will. So just go ahead. I'm going to enjoy another cup of coffee on Gull Lake, and then we'll meet down there. So we head down on Highway 37. And somewhere between Gull Lake and Grand Rapids, in the distance, I look on the right-hand side of the road, and I see somebody pushing their car. And I get a little bit closer, and I see Hoedown look pushing his car. And we pull up behind him, and we say, Hoedown, what happened? He said, I'm out of gas. I say, no problem. I can tow you to the next gas station. Tow him up to the next gas station. And uh, we pull up. I said, there you go. Just fill her up, and we'll be on our way. He looks at me with a very sheepish look on his face, and he says, Peter, this is really embarrassing. I, I don't have a cent on me. I say, no problem. I work for torchbearers. I'll go in and pay your bill. So I went in and pay his bill. He fills his tank. I hop in my car with Gabby. I roll down my window just to say goodbye, and I turn around into my horror. He's pushing his car out of the gas station. It's like I'm saying, hold on. What are you doing? You got a full tank, and it kind of ticks me off when I pay a bill, and you don't use what you have. And there's only one thing more foolish than pushing a car with an empty tank, and that's pushing a car with a full tank. We don't need to do that anymore. We've got all of the living Christ by his spirit living in us if we're born again. And can he bring about change? Absolutely. Because that same spirit has overcome death. And if he's overcome death, he can overcome every other form of human weakness. Because he can't be weaker than dead. So, Peter, how does this work? <laughs> Tomorrow. But it's enough to know that you got a full tank. It's enough to know. We just need to say thank you. So let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that designed us in such a way that man has a spirit where your spirit can dwell and then begin to express himself through our soul and even our body. I thank you that the tank is full when we received Christ. And Lord Jesus, this evening, we want to thank you that you'll never leave us or forsake, you, forsake us, but we also want to confess the sin of our unbelief and our propensity to ignore you there and want to try harder, robbing you of your glory and frustrating ourselves and others. 
So we would ask you, as the scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 1, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. And we thank you that you'll go with us tonight because you live in us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.